And good morning to Wednesday Breakfast listeners. How are we this morning? Before we begin our broadcast for this morning, we would like to acknowledge that we broadcast on the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri and Boon people of the Kulin Nation, the traditional owners and custodians of this land upon which we live and work. We pay our respects to Elders past and present and extend that respect to other First Nations Australians who may be in our audience or listening to this broadcast. We acknowledge the continued resistance of First Nations peoples in the face of ongoing colonisation and settlement and that sovereignty was never ceded and a treaty never signed. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Thank you so much for joining us on 3CR this morning. I hope you're up and well on what is turning out to be a bright Wednesday morning. Forecast for a sunny day with a maximum of 20 degrees. Finally, the weather person is showing us a happy face on the last day of spring. So how did everyone pull up after the election or are you living in one of the handful of electorates which are still hanging in the balance? We'll be touching on one of the knife edge electorates this morning in our first segment when we speak with Dr Sarah Russell about her recent Twitter post concerning alleged disparity in the level of campaign access political candidates are being given to residents of retirement villages and aged care homes. That will be coming up at 10 past 7, our first segment, and then we'll be following with a special segment prepared by Jacob. We'll be hearing from a group of women from the Iranian community in Nam, speaking about their experience of the Iranian regime and the wave of protests that have broken out across Iran and the world following the death of a young woman in police custody. Jacob spoke to the women and brings us a segment as a special long-form broadcast, so make sure you've got your cup of tea ready to settle in. That'll be starting just before 7.30, and it'll probably take us to 8 o'clock when we will be speaking with curator Kendra Morgan about the Barbara Hepworth Sculpture Exhibition that opened earlier this month at the Heidi Museum of Modern Art in Bulleen. Barbara Hepworth is an international icon in the world of sculpture whose selected works are being shown for the first time in Australia. So that'll be a really exciting event and I'm looking forward to speaking with her later on this morning. So we might get started with a song. I look forward to joining you after this one when we speak with Sarah Russell.
sun is shining, or at least it's attempting to, so get your picnic blankets out and gather your mates and stock up on your summer wine. We're so excited that our summer wine fundraiser is back. This year we're selling delicious wine generously provided by 3CR supporter Jamshed Wines. Just $20 per bottle or you can snap up even more of a bargain by buying in a dozen or half dozen lots and mixes. Order online 3cr.org.au forward slash shop or call the station on 9419 8377 during business hours. Jamshed Wines is a 3CR supporter. Did you miss 3CR's broadcast of the inaugural historic first Trans Pride March Melbourne on Sunday 13 November? Perhaps you want to break a binary and listen to it again. Well, either way, you can. It's now available for listening at 3cr.org.au, Trans Pride March Melbourne. Turn it up, feeling that beacon under me, keeping on it all night. Join in the historic occasion and support our trans and gender diverse communities here in Nam. 3CR Radical Radio, proudly supporting trans and gender diverse people as part of diversity in Nam. 3cr.org.au, Trans Pride March Melbourne. And you're back listening to 3CR Wednesday Breakfast. I'm your host, Claudia. And before the break, we heard Thelma Plum with Better in Black. Now we're going to head to our first segment and we'll be speaking with Sarah Russell. While Victorians are coming to terms with the state election results, a small group of voters are simmering over alleged inequity of access among candidates campaigning at aged care homes and retirement villages. Aged care advocate and public health researcher Dr Sarah Russell raised the issue of unfair access on Twitter this week, stating that at her mother's aged care home some years ago, only the Liberal candidate was allowed to visit during an election campaign. The post received a swathe of replies from outraged followers, some of whom shared similar stories of alleged inequity. Dr Russell joins me now to explain the concerns that led to the Twitter post and the steps she is taking to learn more about this matter. I note she is joining us in her capacity as an aged care advocate, but also has a political background and ran as an independent candidate in the federal seat of Flinders earlier this year. We welcome her this morning. Good morning, Sarah. Good morning, It's lovely to have you on the show. I wonder, can you tell us exactly what you wrote in your Twitter post on Monday and what your concerns are? Well, I'll I'll read you the the actual quote, uh, the actual tweet. Uh, I tweeted, The siege of Mornington is on a knife edge because postal votes favour Liberals. For example, some aged care homes and retirement villages provide only Liberal how-to-vote cards. At my mother's aged care home, only the Liberal candidate was allowed to visit during the election campaign. Now, I wrote this tweet knowing it was raising, you know, a contentious issue, uh, particularly for people who are standing as 
independence because we have historically had much less access to both aged care homes and residential retirement villages. And the reason I've been given for this over the years, this is not a new issue, as many of the people who responded to my tweet, this is not new. I mean, Karen Phelps, who stood as an independent candidate in Wentworth, I think, uh, she she tweeted, this is all around Australia, so it's not unique to the Mornington Peninsula in Victoria. It's actually a national issue. Now, that when I've complained about this or raised this issue, I'm not really complaining. I'm not suggesting anything as serious as, as broad as some people are suggesting or, or corruption. I'm just suggesting that people who own private businesses, like an aged care home or a retirement village, you know, they are entitled to uh, determine who comes onto their premises. And in many cases, uh, this is uh, not independence. And just to clarify, um, your post referred to an incident uh, involving your mother's aged care home that I believe was some time ago. So you weren't referring to the current election. No, no, I was. No, I wasn't. I wasn't. Um, that that did happen. Uh, that, that that's when I first realised it actually. Um, Although, you know, I posted the same thing on Facebook and somebody has responded on Facebook to say that they stood as a Labor candidate in the 1990s against Peter Reitz in Flinders' electorate. And uh, I think it was a retirement village, uh, invited the Liberal candidate to come and speak to the residents. And so she asked if she could also come and speak and was told, no, she couldn't. But this is, so this is historical. In my mother's aged care home, I noticed the Liberal candidate was there uh, handing out his postal vote forms to to residents and speaking with residents. So I asked uh, whether the other candidates would be coming in and I was told no, only the Liberal candidate had been invited to come in. So it seems to be invitation, which is, you know, look, we've been in a pandemic, as you know, and, you know, we don't want people flooding into aged care homes right now. Uh, but, look, I'm really raising a concern about the, the disparity in access. Yeah. Thank you. And can you tell us, at the time that you had that experience at your mother's aged care home, what did you do following that uh, information being... Uh, well, I made valid? some inquiries about why this was the case, and that's when I was told uh, that they are private businesses, and so they can determine. So, as a as we know, aged care homes, although they are regulated by the federal government, they are predominantly owned by private uh, either for-profit or not-for-profit, but they are private businesses. So that's what I was told, that they... That's when they... Yes, that's when the red flag went up. I'm not saying, you know, all aged care home providers support the Liberal Party or anything like that. I'm not, I'm not even suggesting that. But I am suggesting that something needs to be done to ensure a level playing field. I mean, as we know, uh, I'm getting off track just slightly for one second, but, you know, one of the things Simon Holmes, the court has been trying to do over the last few elections is to equal the playing field. 
And I think for a democratic election, that is a is a fair thing to try to do to make it a fair a fair contest, so people can decide. Now, just you know, other people have responded to my tweet by talking about who fills out the postal vote, and I've been told in some responses that you know Liberal volunteers go into aged care homes and fill out the postal vote. Now that's that's wrong, and that must be stopped. But my mother. Um, you know, I filled out her postal vote, but I knew her her values and I knew her voting history and we talked about it and then I filled it out with her. That's that to me that's fine for family members to be doing it, but I don't think it's fine for, for particular party volunteers to be doing it. And one would have to wonder, you know, how that approach was made and what information was given to the person when um that happened. Indeed. I mean, you know, some people have also responded to my tweet by saying people in aged care homes should not vote, should be taken off the electoral roll. I completely disagree with that. They are entitled to uh, express their democratic right by voting. However, some people in aged care homes have lost legal capacity. And, you know, I think people without legal capacity uh, should be removed from the um, from the electoral roll because... They're the people most vulnerable to uh, somebody else filling out their postal vote, not with their own intentions, if that makes sense to you. I mean, it's, they can be swayed by somebody else filling out their postal vote who doesn't know their voting history, who doesn't know their values. Exactly. And speaking of the age community, it's their democratic rights that are at the centre of this discussion. Can you tell us what level of awareness um, you sense there is amongst aged care community members or residents that you've had contact with at at any aged care home or retirement village? I've raised this issue in my... I've got a Facebook group with 5,500 members, many of whom are residents and family. Um, I've raised the issue, but look, you know, over the last... You know, ten years where I've been an advocate. I, um, you know, I raise. You know, I focus on specific issues, um, and I think this might be my next issue to focus on because I, I think I should have a discussion with the Aged Care Quality and Safety Commission about what they're doing to ensure residents can, you know, have their democratic rights protected. I think this is an issue that needs to be raised, and it's look. It really only only sparked an interest on, on um, Saturday night. I went to bed thinking our independent candidate uh, had won because it was on the ABC. She'd won. And then we woke up Sunday morning to find uh, uh, when you go to the ABC uh, how to vote for the voting site, it said that the postal votes favour the Liberals or the major parties, I think it said, major parties. And, and, just, and, and she was now on an ice edge. And I thought, wow. You know, she's going to. It's going to be the postal votes that determine the outcome of this this seat, and and that's when I started to think, well, this is something I. I'm not. It's not going to change things for this election, but I think this is an issue that needs to be properly investigated. Mm. And just for listeners who aren't uh, in your uh, Mornington area, would you like to just explain the situation there with the final count and the candidates? Oh, look, it's very close, um, but it's becoming less close uh, as the as the 
uh, postal um, votes are being counted. I think the postal votes close on Friday. The, one of the first people who responded to my tweet, uh, which was a couple of days ago, was the campaign manager for the Mornington Independent Candidate, and he said he could confirm my tweet. He said they were not allowed to go into certain aged care homes. They, um, I haven't got his tweet in front of me, but he, he did confirm this, but it is on the knife's edge still. Um, so is Hawthorne. Now, the I don't know if it was the campaign manager, but somebody in the Hawthorne electorate also tweeted back to me saying, we also have a lot of aged care homes in our electorate. And this person actually posted a graph which showed uh, how equal the votes were for pre-poll and voting day, so face-to-face voting. And then he posted the graph for postal votes and absentee votes, and uh, the Liberal candidate almost got double what the independent candidate got. So there's something going on that is worth investigating. Mm. And you also mentioned that another response had been from a former independent candidate in the Kuyong seat uh, who had talked about the access via mobile voting buses. Yeah, he, he, he did. Oliver Yates was a candidate before Monique Ryan. Uh, I don't know about the voting uh, mobile. I, I've never considered that as a, a thing, but also the Mornington campaign manager mentioned that as well, suggesting that... And, and this, to me, sounds... To me, sounds wrong. So, I, and, I, and it's not part of my awareness. So, I, you know, can't really comment. But if the Liberal candidate was getting advice about where the mobile bus was going to be or the voting centre in advance, so could be there to hand out power to vote cards and and material, uh, that that's very wrong. And and that was an allegation that that was new to me, and I did not make that allegation. Thank you for clarifying that. But it's um, yeah important to have all the possibilities aired so the full extent of this could can be explored and 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 if there are instances of unfairness, then there really needs to be steps to rectify the situation. Yeah, I think I do think that's the right word to be using. Unfairness. Uh, nothing more serious has been alleged. I think it's just the unfairness that's been that needs to be investigated. And how can our listeners um, follow a, your thread or get involved in raising any of their own experiences or contributing to what you might do next in terms of ex- exploring this? Well, there, are two, well, there are three ways, I think. Uh, the first way would be to follow me on Twitter, which is age, um, hashtag AgedMatters, um, to follow, to join the Aged Care Matters Facebook group and to contribute there. Uh, uh, I'm going to be compiling all these responses into a document. So if they don't, if they're not on social media, they could uh, email me. Um, the best way to find me is to just Google Aged Care Matters and there's an email address on my website that they could use to let me know and I could include that in the document. And the document will be going to uh, the VEC so the Victorian Electoral Commission, I'm going to send it to the um, Australian Electoral Commission because this is not just about state elections. This is also about federal elections. And I'll also send it to the Aged Care Quality and Safety Commission just so they can be aware of what people are saying. I do consumer research, so the consumer experience of this, as in the voters' experience, 
is important to me. So I'll be sending that um, over the next couple of weeks. Well, thank you very much for uh, speaking to us this morning, for raising awareness about this potential problem. And uh, we will definitely like to keep in touch and, and hear uh, if you receive a response or what next steps and actions uh, might be. So, yeah, thanks very much for joining us this morning. My pleasure. And that was public health researcher and aged care advocate, Dr Sarah Russell, speaking about her concerns about equitable access to residents of aged care homes and retirement villages for political candidates in the lead up to elections. And as Sarah said, you can follow her on Twitter at Aged Matters or on Facebook at Aged Care Matters. And the Victorian Electoral Commission also uh, on Sarah's post uh, invited complaints to be uh, forwarded through their, their normal uh, channels, which are on their website, vec.vic.gov.au. So if you uh, have an experience that you'd like to notify them about, that would be the avenue for that. We're going to take a short break now. And when we come back, we're going to be hearing from a group of Australian Iranian women. Tune in to Rest is Survival, 3CR's International Day of People with Disability broadcast. On 3rd of December, 7am to 7pm, we're talking about the role of rest in the anti-capitalist revolution, with programming by multiply marginalised disabled people and disabled broadcasters from the 3CR community. Visit 3cr.org.au forward slash Disability Day 2022. Three CR is a community radio license holder. What you hear on community radio is governed by the community radio codes of practice. The codes of practice cover matters relating to program content, including local content, news, current affairs, Australian music content, programs for children, and the responsibilities associated with broadcasting by and for the community. They also cover aspects such as community access and participation in how three CR operates. Copies of the codes are available from our website. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash who we are. We're back on 3CR Wednesday Breakfast. I'm Claudia, your host this morning. We're going to take uh, a little music break now before we go to our segment uh, about Iran. We're going to hear from Kutcher Edwards. This is Lie. Taken by the wealthy man 
I guess she's trying to understand Oh, why? Oh, why? Please tell me why Do the children cry? by the children's needs in a world of so much greed when love can't buy a feed she can't even buy and shoes now she's got the blues never any good news this story is sad but true oh why Tell me why do the children cry? truth and lies as she looks at it is gone by oh how it makes her cry oh why oh why please tell me why That was Kutcher Edwards, and I incorrectly uh, called that song Lie when the title is Why. So apologies to listeners for that. And uh, just an announcement that um, Kutcher Edwards is going to be hosting a new show on NITV shortly. So um, look out for that. I believe it's called Curry Karaoke. So that'll be an interesting one. Um, we heard Kutcher Edwards playing on Sunday at a 3CR gig at the Brunswick Ballroom. So, uh, yeah, he's a, a great artist to support. Okay, on to our next segment. Um, and this one, I will just remind listeners that this uh, relates to a tragic death of a young woman in Iran. Um, so if that 
will uh, be triggering for you. You might want to tune out. Masa Amini died in the custody of the Iranian morality police earlier this year. And the incident sparked a wave of protests in Iran and across the world. The Iranian community here in Nam continues to stand strong, marching weekly in support of the Women, Life, Freedom movement, calling for greater freedoms for women and the end to Iran's oppressive regime. Jacob brings you this segment where we'll hear the voices of young Iranian Australian women. And a note, this is a special segment that will run for longer than normal, so uh, I hope you can listen to it uh, all. And here we go, here's Jacob. It's a name that's being chanted across the world. On September 16, 2022, Masa Amini, a 22-year-old Iranian woman, died in the custody of Iran's morality police under suspicious circumstances. Iranian authorities claim she died of a heart attack, but Amini's family tell a different story, that she was abused by police in their custody. Since then, protesters have been organising every week in Iran and many countries across the world, calling for an end to the mandatory hijab, and by extension, an end to Iran's repressive regime. Today, the voices of Iranian women from Nam, Melbourne. Hi, my name is Delaram. Ahmadi, and I'm an Iranian Australian woman. Delaram Ahmadi is an actress and an activist. Since the Islamic Revolution of 1979, Iran has existed as an Islamic Republic. So can you tell us a bit about what this style of government looks like? Well, this government is a theocracy. The rules uh, are based on the um, Islamic rules. Who who sets these rules is the supreme leader, Ali Khamenei, and everything goes through um, the supreme leader. Even uh, even if people vote for uh, presidents, um, the the candidates go through the supreme leader's um, uh, decision. The women have um, very limited rights um, under these rules. For example, uh, they have to have a certain dress dress code. They have to have a full scarf and um, also uh, cover all their bodies and wear loose clothes. And um, if they don't do that, they will arrest them. Sometimes in some cases they get killed, which we see now. And also, uh, women don't have divorce rights, uh, whereas men have in, in the Islamic Republic. So a man can just say they want a divorce and they can divorce their wives, but the women have to go through court and um, the judge uh, makes the decision. And this decision is going to be based on if the husband is um, uh, mentally ill or addicted or... 
um, basically um, not well to be a husband. So a, a woman can't just not want to be married to, to, to a man. They have to have a valid reason. Um, women can't travel without the permission of their husbands. They have to um, have the signature of their uh, husbands to get a passport or if they want to travel. Uh, the women in Iran get, um, the men in Iran get twice as much inheritance as females. And the list goes on. <laughs> I, can, I can tell you so many of these rules that um, demolish women's rights in Iran. I know the morality police have quite an important role to play uh, in this story. Can you tell us a bit about who they are and what purpose they serve? Yes, well, so, um, as I said, um, the Islamic Republic is a theocracy. So the whole system based their pillars on uh, women's dress code, you know? So when the uh, Islamic Republic started, uh, they put the dress code on women and that's their symbol of the power of the whole system, right? So the, in order for them to be in power and show their power to people, the world, they need to make sure that um, women comply to these dress codes. So they put um, morality police um, to police around uh, women for their dress code. And these um, uh, polices, they're not trained. Uh, so when you say morality police, don't imagine like uh, trained police officers uh, coming to do this job and they're like trained me- mentally and physically. They're not. They're actually anyone in the street can go and um, apply for the job and they could just get them as morality police. And these people could be criminals, could be um, pedophiles, could be anything. They're not, they don't go through any psychological tests or anything, you know? So um, basically these people just um, have a van and police around women and they could just point out to anyone that they don't like how they dress and um, arrest them. And that could mean um, if they wear their scarf too loosely or if they have nail polish on or like a a really um, bright nail polish could be a crime. Mm-hmm. Or um, like a very um, like a really um, like a lot of makeup as well. Like it, it could be anything. It's just based on what they think um, is more moral, like morally correct. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, yeah, when they arrest women, they take them to the um, uh, the police station and. They ask them to. They ask them uh, to call their families to bring them the um, acceptable dress code, and they could they could have any type of behavior when they arrest them on the way in the van, or even at the police station. The morality police actually um, uh, could arrest you based on your relationship with uh, a male as well like a female and a male. You can't be to get seen, be seen together if you're not married at, in public. Uh, but, yeah, so this time they actually um, uh, 
killed a girl in September on September 16th. Uh, her name was uh, Gina Massa Amini. Uh, they picked up on her. They pick on her because um, she was wearing her hijab too loosely. And um, from the photos that you see everywhere, um, there's like photos everywhere on social media um, from what she looks looked like um, at the time. It's it's not like she was wearing anything uh, really uh, revealing or anything. Um, and they beat her to death. Uh, while she was in custody, and this uh, started an uprising in Iran. But the only reason, uh, but the reason for this uprising that started wasn't only because of this one incident. It's a long-time history because um, when this regime started uh, in Iran, even even the rules they they even the things that they said um, they're going to do the morals that they said they're um, based on they don't even follow those morals. Um, they're they've been stealing money from people from the oil. Uh, they've um, we have Iran has so much oil that people if people got that money from selling the oil no one would be um, poor. But you see a lot of poor people, a lot of homeless people in Iran. Um, people uh, don't have uh, meat to eat. They can't have meat. And, and what they said about people were unhappy about the situation. And you know what they said? The government said, oh, it's better to go vegetarian anyways. That's what the answer was to people that didn't have food to eat. But anyway, so um, the uprisings um, uh, is based on the anger of people uh for putting up with oh, so much brutality and so much injustice for 43 years. And um, this was uh, not the first uprising. A lot of uprisings happened before that as well. But um, um, this uprising was just um, the end of, um, of people's patience. And I think the government being so brutal about the um, uh, protests uh, is adding to people's anger every day. And uh, every time government kills one person, people get angrier and angrier and uh, go to streets more. Absolutely. And <clears throat> we know after the tragic death um, of Massa Amini in September, as you said, there's been a massive movement um, across Iran, but also around the world. I mean, can you tell us a bit about what's been unfolding in the last two months and what these protesters are calling for? Uh, well, yes. Yeah, so uh, a lot of people in diaspora, a lot of Iranians in diaspora um, are very devastated because um, they see the videos of their, um, their peers, their families, their friends in Iran getting killed. Um and they want to do something. Obviously, they can't go back. And um, they, we all decided to um, uh, do protests um, in diaspora in other countries and call for um, a death of the Islamic regime uh, because um, the main reason of um, a lot of us Iranians in diaspora immigrating is uh, running away from the brutality and uh, brutal and injustice um, rules of the Islamic Republic. Uh, 
and um, uh, we basically go and protest every weekend and call for action um, from our representatives. We want um, our politicians, uh, for example, us in Australia, we want our politicians to cut ties with the Islamic regime, to um, freeze their assets, to not let them in the country, to put IRGC uh, as a terrorist group and, um, and basically yeah, cut down all the relationships with the country so there's more pressure on the Islamic regime. Mm. But what we want is the end of this dictatorship and we want democracy for Iran. You're listening to 3CR. We just heard from Iranian activist Delaram Ahmadi about the situation in Iran and why so many people are protesting following the death of Masa Amini. Hello, my name is Aida. I am 28, I guess. Uh, from Iran, Tabriz. It's located on the northwest of Iran. I work as a graduate architect and I'm a queer performer slash <laughs> architect. I don't know. Hi, so um, I'm Nazanin. I grew up in Tehran uh, and I just turned 29. Uh, and I work in the Victorian government in transport. And what is your favourite part about Iranian culture? Oh, I have a good answer for this. My favourite part, I was thinking about this question, and I was like, you know, you can't say food, you can't say, like, you know, the dances or the culture, but for me, it's this word, mehmuni. <laughs> it means party, but it's not a, like a dupes, dupes, dupes party. It's like a family party. It's like the family coming together and having, like, amazing food, and, yeah, you might end up dancing at some point, unexpected. I... Kind of have a love and hate relationship to Iran because um, as a queer person, I had a very difficult life back home. I didn't came out like till I moved here. And um, honestly, it's very hard for um, LGBTQA family uh, to live in Iran, kind of. But um, I love Iran, <laughs> although I hated it when I was living there at some point. And I think what I love about Iran the most is uh, how it's engaged with art. Like, Iran has a very, um, um, like, um, one of the richest art heritages in the world. And even the um, photography, the uh, cinema photography or everything is very beautiful. And um, even our language is very poetic, I guess. When people hear it, they're like, oh, oh. It must be really emotional seeing all of the images of what's happening back home. I mean, we were having a discussion about this before with about the protest movement and how it feels really profound. There's a lot of solidarity work happening internationally. Mm. What does this protest mean for you? I mean, what are your hopes for the future of Iran? Um, first of all, seeing that this movement is a very... It started as a feminist movement yeah. in Iran. It really warms my heart. And seeing that, like, okay, people are standing for women. 
good. And um, that was refreshing. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's very empowering and amazing to see people are united for women's rights at the beginning. But now it's like more it's like there are various reasons that people are protesting outside and um, um, fighting against like shoulder to shoulder. It's very it's very um, I don't know. I'm very emotional about this. Um, but um, does it make you feel hope? Are you hopeful? I ha- I'm I am hopeful, and I'm lo- yeah. I'm I cannot wait to dance under Azadi Tavern with my old friends and celebrate freedom. Yeah. yeah. I was just telling Jacob I've been having this kind of like very vivid daydreams that <laughs> it will be a revolution. There will be a change, and yeah. like you know, I can go back and like do something for my country do like you know, you know teach in a school or mm. like you know do a little bit on this part of the government or that like you probably have the park public service and like yeah give something back and um be safe while doing it i kind of tried to learn okay how do i keep myself alive in this regime i don't go to the protest don't go to other district don't go to Engalabi street don't like you know do this thing don't say that thing don't associate with that people okay you're safe but the morality police are on the street all the time. They're the only form of police that they have interacted, I have interacted with in 20-something years of living in Iran. Mm. And um, they were actually <laughs> the reason that I lost hope in uh, building a life for myself as a woman in my country. Mm. The day before, so for going to university in Iran, after you do your high school, we all have to take a national exams, like a really big exams, four hour sitting test of everything you have learned in the last four years of high school. It's serious. Everyone like, you know, studies for it for years and like, you know, they prepare for it. Oh, fuck that. The day before it, <laughs> the day before it, uh, kind of like this teacher of mine, they <laughs> told us, yeah, you know, you have studied for more than a year, like nonstop. The day before is when you need to like go and do something fun and rest. So my dad took me and my brother and it was like, you know, hang around in the city and we went to a couple places. And at the end of the day, we were coming out of this shopping center and there was a morality police. I was 17. I always wore very baggy pants and baggy like tops and everything. I was like tomboy style. Just everything was just so loose. You really couldn't see my body through it. Mm-hmm. But yeah, one of them came towards me and she was like, my sister. And I was like, yes. And then she was like, do you think what you're wearing is proper? And I haven't registered yet that they're actually, like, you know, gonna, uh, like, find me or, like, take me away or, like, all of that. I That was, like, my first time interacting with them. I haven't registered. Oh, I'm grown up enough to be arrested by these people now. Mm. And my dad just ho- hold my hand and he started shouting at them, kind of, like, creating this diversion. And, yeah, they respected the man more than anyone else around. And he just, like, took me around, took me away with my brother. And yeah, the day after that, during the national exam, I cried for Mm. more than half of it. I had really high hopes to get good grades and like, you know, go into uh, my top choice. I didn't. I fucked up that exam. I got not a good grade. And I was crying because I was thinking to myself that doesn't matter how much how much I how hard I work doesn't matter how hard I work to become somebody 
important in this country. Yeah. I will never be respected as a woman. I will never have equal rights as a woman. What am I killing myself for? These morality policies are always around and they're always like they're just waiting somewhere to, you know, attack you in a way. And um, yeah, I've been um, questioned by them so many times, but my tactic was always like um, cry hysterically. And so they will like, be like oh my god <laughs> like sometimes they would leave like let you go but the way they treat people is so shit they treat you like a criminal and like one thing as you mentioned they don't respect women as much as they respect men honestly well in islam in other in the quran it it says that women is half men so what you expect from a society that it's already told like written that um women is half men so of course they're not gonna respect you of course like all the feelings that Nazanin was saying that she had at the exam I had all of those as well I had to shout harder I had to always be louder hmm. to be acknowledged with from the people around me and as I am a queer open-minded person feminist who's always been loud and like you know always fought for my rights i've always have also been under attack even if um um i didn't do anything and i just existed There's been a lot of international solidarity, yeah. um, as we said before. And I know the two of you have been somewhat involved in the solidarity movement here in Melbourne. Mm. Um, tell us a bit about what that's been like and, and what have you all been up to? Um, I think, like, you know, uh, almost all the protests in Melbourne that I've been to, uh, it always felt like the community itself, us Iranians, we needed group therapy. <laughs> we are going to it as group therapy for us because yeah, yeah we're like all impacted and yeah. uh, you know other people don't understand what's going to us what's mm. happening to us uh, and yeah especially at the beginning people kept making circles and chanting at each other kind of like it was a really uh, spiritual experience at some points we just keep chanting say her name Masa Amini Masa Amini mm. woman life freedom chants like that I've been to majority of them. Um, um, it's as as Nazarene was saying. It's very um, like I don't have a strong connection to lots of Iranians here. I don't know many of them, but being in an environment with Iranians and shouting for the same thing was very nice. And um, also, lots of my non-Iranian friends also joined us, and it really surprised me in a way that like, oh, hmm, they care as well. Hmm, but um. I've seen people like engaging with it and talking about it, but um, I don't see many people posting about it or writing about it on Twitter or Instagram or any any other places, especially mm. in Australia. And I have asked my like I am a person who doesn't like post stuff on my Instagram a lot, but since all of these has happened, every day you see me ten stories like um, sharing and stuff. But like when I ask my non-Iranian friends why most of them are not engaging with this. Some of them said that, oh, you know, um, it's not, um, we're just also scared of being 
judged by others because this is not, if you're posting about it it's fine you're Iranian you have a, a ver, like you you can talk about mm. it but when people are gonna call me out and be like what do you have to say about this but then it's I'm like well what did you have to say with Ukraine what did why did you stand with mm. uh, BLM like isn't this like and especially feminists I'm like dude you how the fuck you call yourself a feminist or even a I don't know a human who you like things that happening on in Iran are horrible and like you're witnessing them even like the way I'm posting I have like um I check my stories I see that people like at least 300 people or, or 400 people see it and like I don't see many of them like be engaging with this and it's I'm like hmm Um, I, I think we mm. need solidarity from uh, other more established uh, activist groups mm-hmm. in Australia because yet yeah, they have the infrastructure. They have like, you know, the resources uh, and the knowledge of how to put together information for a campaign and like, you know, which politician to talk to or how to talk to them, all of that. Um, the people who have organized the protest in Iran, no, f- sorry, for Iran in Melbourne, the people who have organized the protests for Iran and Melbourne, uh, they're kind of like, you know, building the plane and flying it at the same time. Mm. And, um, yeah, it's like, a, it's taking a lot of work. Even I have participated in the protests. I have like made a couple banners. I have made a couple graffitis on a wall. I have like, you know, done little smaller things here and there. And even that has taken over all of my life and everything like all of the resources i have available to me so this is hard work and there is no time to rest uh we do need help there's been this chant um, that I think has been kind of adopted as the catch cry, right? Like women, life, like freedom. freedom. Um, when you hear that chant, how do you feel or what comes to your mind? I have, I heard it first time in these protests and it was new for me. It was showing very clearly that the key to solving our problems start from women, start from the person that can create life and that is how you get to freedom that's how I got that's what I'm seeing in it and every time people chanted uh makes me very emotional yeah same for me um I I love hearing it especially in Farsi it's again poetic <laughs> it's it's zan zendegi azadi which um like putting women and freedom next to each other is a thing that I didn't have back home and like seeing people are saying oh no we gotta fight for it and um, every time like there is this um, strong image of a woman um, holding her hand up with her hair and um, like the cut up hair that people like women in, when uh, they're cutting their hair up yeah. because of this movement um, it's that that I'm always like okay hmm We gotta, you gotta keep going. You gotta, you gotta push for this. You gotta ask for the freedom that you didn't have. And um, I'm, I'm hopeful. It makes me hopeful.
And that was the voices of young Iranian-Australian women in Nam sharing their experiences. And uh, I'm not sure about you out there, but I thought that was a particularly powerful and moving segment. Uh, big thank you to Jacob for bringing that to us. And thank you to Dalaram, Ida, Nazanin and Jahan for their contributions to the story. Uh, yeah, just... Very um, powerful to hear those first-hand experiences. And if you do want to continue supporting the people of Iran, Delaram says to please keep elevating the voices of Iranians who are operating under extreme state censorship. You can email your representatives asking the government to cut ties with the Islamic Republic. Ida and Nazanin say they're going to the protests raising awareness in workplaces and schools and sharing on social media are great ways to keep Iran in the public conversation. And most importantly, check in on your Iranian friends to see how they're going. We're going to take a break for a song uh, in a minute, but while we're on the subject of fighting for freedom, uh, listeners will be aware of the protests that have broken out in China um, and around the world objecting to the regime's very strict COVID-19 restrictions and the trigger being a fire in which uh, 10 people died recently in an apartment block. Um, and, yeah, that's obviously been an overwhelming uh action taken by the Chinese people participating and is being uh, very visible on our, on our media. But alongside that, the Uyghur community, uh, who we have reported on uh, consistently on this program, uh, also continuing their fight for freedom against the Chinese um, government. And tomorrow in Nam. There is a protest starting at 11.30am at the State Library of Victoria on Swanston Street. It'll be 11.30am to 1.30pm uh, where you can join China's concentration camp survivors, the World Uyghur Congress representatives and the Australian Uyghur community to demand China end its genocide and fight for freedom of East Turkestan. So they're demanding for the Australian government to take stronger actions, strengthen anti-slavery laws and sanction Chinese human rights abusers. Uh, so, yeah, that's a, a big event taking place tomorrow. So I thought I would draw that to your attention uh, while we're um, talking about the importance of uh, human rights and fighting for freedom. We're going to take a, a break now. We're going to listen to Kian. Here is Better Things.
Robbie Thorpe. Crime Scene Australia, it's not just an ordinary comic. How would you describe this comic, Tara? It's a comic book for adults. We're taking Australian history, turning it on its head and making it real history. It's funny and it's dark. It's supernatural. We've got to launch the comic. Robbie and I will both be there from 6 o'clock. Carol Carpenter from Us Mob playing a bunch of songs. We do a bit of a smoking ceremony to bring everybody in. To all the listeners out there, if you're interested in coming along, it's Thursday, the 1st of December, 6 o'clock at Wolfhound Cafe on Brunswick Street for Crime Scene Australia. When you know your history, you know you know where you're coming from. A 3CR supporter.
3CR is a community radio licence holder. What you hear on community radio is governed by the community radio codes of practice. The codes of practice cover matters relating to program content, including local content, news, current affairs, Australian music content, programs for children, and the responsibilities associated with broadcasting by and for the community. They also cover aspects such as community access and participation in how 3CR operates. Copies of the codes are available from our website. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash who we are. And you're back listening to 3CR Wednesday Breakfast, 8.55am on the dial. This is Claudia, pleased to be hosting the program this morning. And uh, before the break, we heard a lovely song from Kian, one of our favourites here, that was Better Things. And before that, we've been listening to the voices of Australian-Iranian women talking about their experience of Iran um, in the aftermath of the tragic death of a young Iranian woman uh, in police custody. We're now going to move to another subject, yet one that also uh, celebrates and validates the power of, of women. English-born Barbara Hepworth is an internationally renowned sculptor whose pioneering work has had an enduring influence on abstract sculpture globally. She broke through conventional boundaries, creating works from stone when others worked in clay and pioneering the method known as piercing the form. Now Australians have the opportunity to experience Barbara Hepworth's sculptures in an Australian first exhibition at the Heidi Museum of Modern Art in Bulleen, Melbourne. We're joined now by the co-curator of the exhibition, Kendra Morgan, to find out more about this great 20th century artist and her legacy. Good morning, Kendra. Good morning, Claudia. Lovely to have you. Thanks so much for joining us on 3CR Breakfast. It's a pleasure. I'm very happy to be here. Okay, so can you fill us in on this wonderful artist in the sculpture world? Barbara Hepworth is a very big name. Can you tell us why she is so highly regarded? She is a big name. She's the she, Barbara Hepworth was the first female sculptor to receive international recognition and she's very well known in Europe and, and of course the UK where she's from but interestingly probably lesser known in this part of the world although she was a leading figure in the British modernist movement and um, she's often compared or seen in the shadow of Henry Moore who was a friend of hers but also I guess a rival um, and Henry Moore is often credited with the piercing of the form innovation that you mentioned before, whereas Barbara Hepworth was, uh, in fact, the first sculptor to experiment with that idea of, um, you know, it basically creating a hole or a cavity through um, a sculptural form to explore the negative space and the idea that space could be a form in itself. And that changed the development of sculptural vocabulary. So um, part of um, the exhibition, having the exhibition in Australia, of course, is to um, give her the acknowledgement that she's uh, due, which has really been coming forth in the last 25 years or so. Yeah, thanks for um, giving us that, that background. And you, you talked about piercing the form. Can you tell us a little bit more about how that manifests itself in an artwork? 
Sure. It, it's really, um, I mean, Barbara Hepworth used the term piercing the form, which is a very active term. She was, you know, wanting to um, show how it wasn't just a kind of um, a passive idea of creating a hole in a sculpture. She really wanted to pierce through her forms, whether in stone or in wood or in metals indeed, um, to create, uh, uh, explore the internal space within the object and, and have the viewer explore that as well so space almost becomes like a material in itself that she um, investigates and in some of the sculptures in the exhibition there's a, a, a particularly good example is a very large work called Corinthos which is um, fi almost 500 kilograms in weight it's made of timber and it's um, a very solid um, a solid piece of, of timber almost reflective of the original um, tree trunk that it came from but she has um, um, tunnelled and carved these cavities throughout the form so you can see right through it that it creates a kind of undulating rhythm through the, through the timber. And then she painted the cavity white and you can see her hand-carved chisel marks within. So there's this beautiful kind of play of light and interplay between light and dark and play between space and um, or mass, if you like, and void. And that was very experimental and very innovative at the first time that Barbara Hepworth did it, back in 1932. Um, and really, from that point onwards, a lot of sculptors experimented with that idea of using the negative space. Um, the first, very first pierce form she created was an abstract um, work in, in stone. And in fact, it did not survive. It was left in her London studio during the Blitz, and sadly, it was destroyed. Um, but we have in the exhibition the earliest surviving pierced form, which is a small abstracted figure um, with a small cavity through it. So that was an exciting um, you know, aspect of the exhibition to be able to explore. Yes, it's interesting that word piercing does give the image of quite a small hole. So it's interesting that that early work was actually quite a small piece. Um, I've been to the uh, Barbara Hepworth studio in St Ives in Cornwall where the pieces that are on display are all absolutely enormous. So, yeah, the idea of, of piercing in these very large pieces um, is a little bit almost misleading, isn't it, when um, we're talking about very large scale holes or tunnels as you have described them. Yes, so her later work, so she started out, as you mentioned earlier, um, Claudia, working in stone. In fact, she trained in marble carving in Italy in the 1920s. She won a scholarship to travel to Italy. But she then she also broadened her focus to include timber, and she used a lot of hardwoods um, because a lot of women hobbyist carvers at the time carved in softwoods or made clay maquettes which were then handed over to a master carver to create another material. And Barbara Hepworth was a very strong proponent of direct carving. Anyway, the, the smaller works in the exhibition from, uh, from the 1930s, um, mostly in 1940s, because also during the war she was living in St Ives, where you've been in, to her amazing studio, and she initially didn't have a studio and had to create works on a small scale when her children had gone to bed and the family was settled. Um, but later... She was able to work on a much larger scale because she moved into bronze and because she was such a devotee of carving, she developed a system of plaster armatures where she would um, put plaster of Paris over you know, wire armature and carve into that to create the form which was then cast in bronze on a much, much larger scale. And that um, the move to bronze um, was 
very exciting because it enabled her to create these very large, almost immersive sculptures and sometimes, you know, some, some of the larger later work, she said, you know, I wanted to create forms that you could look through, that you could, you know, look at the landscape through and that you could almost, you know, climb through. And they are very um, reminiscent of the Neolithic standing stones on the Cornish coast, which were very inspirational for her um, after she moved to St Ives during the war. Yes, the environment um, was a big inspiration for her work. So, yes, the theme of landscape is quite predominant. It is very uh, predominant in the fact, in the sense that she always said there were three forms um, that were particularly important to her and one was the standing form, or tried to represent these um, in depth in the exhibition, the standing form which represents the human figure in, in relation to the landscape and her feeling of being in the landscape. And the second form, which was significant, was two forms in dialogue, and they're often set um, in the landscape as well. And then the third form that she often talks about is what she calls it the closed form, which is a little bit contradictory because it includes her pierced forms, and that's often an ovoid um, shape, often perhaps with a cavity or with colour in it. Um, and that also represents, in many instances, her um, feeling towards the landscape. Um, it's the embrace of two living things, but often the kind of feeling of being embraced within the landscape as well. And some of those closed form pieces have strings attached um, from uh, their openings. So they, um, the, and the strings represent her, her tensions or connections between herself and the landscape. So it was a huge part of her practice. And we've tried in the exhibition design, which is beautifully and sensitively designed by Studio Bright Architects to where possible, get a sense of the Heidi landscape um, in the windows uh, beyond the sculptures so that they're shown in a setting that Barbara Hepworth would have approved of. Are all the sculptures displayed inside the gallery spaces at Heidi or do you have some outside? No, they're all inside. Um, these days, of course, um, although Barbara Hepworth really wanted her work to be seen outside, a lot of the works come from prestigious institutions like the Tate and the British Council, and they have very strict lender um, kind of conditions. So they are all inside, but you, that there is one particular work um, called Two Forms in Echelon, which is very um, reminiscent of that idea of those ancient standing stones, and that's set in, um, against a, a large... A window directly to the landscape so it does give you a little bit of a sense of being in the outdoors. And one of the other things I read about was that she was also um, very uh, interested in the relationship between the human uh, and the way the human interacts with art, uh, the relationship between the object and the spectator as she put it. Can you tell us a little bit about the ways she explored this in her work? Well, it was very different when Barbara Hepworth was creating her works to how we experience them today because she, in fact, was wanted her works to be touched. So when she had a large um, retrospective exhibition of 200 works at Whitechapel Art Gallery in London in 1954, um, the most rewarding part of that for her was that works came back with black finger marks on them so she knew that people had been touching them, which is unimaginable in a gallery setting today. But her work is very much about human relationships, even though we've just discussed how the landscape was inspirational. Many of the forms, um, although they're abstract, and she did start out as a, as a more of a figurative artist, but moved quickly into abstraction and pure abstraction. There's always echoes of figures. And often there are two, as I mentioned before, two forms in dialogue with one another. So it's like about human relationships and perhaps three forms as well, because when she was... 
um, living in London in the 1930s and in a relationship with the abstract painter Ben Nicholson. She had triplets to Ben Nicholson, um, which was unexpected because they didn't have ultrasounds at the time. But a lot of her works um, coming after that period, although they're um, abstract forms, there are often three forms in relationship to one another as she explored um, the, the, I guess the, the, the kind of com- the physical conversation and relationship with, between her children, but also um, the maternal relationship as well. So humanity, she had a very humanist vision, and that's definitely um, a fundamental kind of basis of a lot of the work. Yes, and that's a, a perfect segue to um, my next question. As a woman uh, working from the 1930s and right through to her death in 1975, how were things for women artists during that period? Um, I'm interested to know how she navigated that space and what the barriers were for her working as a it's, woman artist. It's a good question, Claudia, because it was a very... She was very lucky, Barbara Hepworth, to have an enlightened family. I mean, it was very unusual for a woman to make a career as a sculptor, as a, as a very serious sculptor, not only a sculptor, but an abstractionist in the 1930s. But she, her family um, supported her to go to art school. She was from a, a, a small city, cathedral city in Yorkshire called Wakefield, where, in fact, there's a dedicated Barbara Hepworth Museum today. Um, but she went to um, the Leeds School of Art, which was nearby Wakefield in 1920, and then her parents um, were the, encouraged her to go to the Royal College of Art in London. And a lot of women artists did attend the Royal College of Art, but uh, they were more uh, didn't necessarily de- develop an actual career as an artist. It was more uh, conceived, conceived as a hobby for women. So she was very um, determined and Winning the um, the scholarship to go to Italy really cemented her her position as a sculptor, and she was a very respected member of a lot of avant-garde circles in the 1930s, not just in London but also in Paris. And Ben Nicholson um, had a lot of connections to Paris, and artists such as Brancusi and Picasso and John Art, sculptor uh, Mondrian, became a, a friend of, of Ben Nicholson and Barbara Hepworth, for example, and um, Hepworth. Uh, it received encouragement from those other sculptors, but she also was very single-minded and continued her career. She felt later on that she'd often been overlooked for opportunities that went to artists such as Henry Moore because she was a woman, and she also said, because I'm a wife and I'm a mother and an abstractionist. And so she did see all those things as barriers, but she famously said that the dictates of work are as compelling for a woman as they are for a man. And she did not compromise and she remained, um, you know, true to her career and she worked around having a family and the demands of, you know, triplets and she also had a son from a a previous marriage. So she was incredibly, um, as you can imagine, you know, they were quite challenging circumstances, but she persisted with her career and by after the war, 1950, she was asked to represent Britain at the Venice Biennale and then she won the grand prize at the Sao Paulo Biennale in 1959 and after that recognition although it was hard one began to come to her. Yes it's interesting um, when you mentioned uh, her role as a mother of looking after four children there was criticism that she put the the children into outside care to concentrate on her art and career and that that framing of her as an artist in relation to that role as a mother 
um, is is interesting in that continual uh, way that women can be framed in relation to children and caring roles. Uh, I was reading that at the time, one at one time, she had these four young children, and yet the the fathers were absent. The father of the triplets was away in London, doing his work, and she was in Paris looking after them in a in a small room, and yet it was she that was chastised for you know, outsourcing their care in some form. Uh, interesting. Yes, it's, of course, it's not an unfamiliar story, and you're right, absolutely right. Ben Nicholson, um, which I haven't mentioned, um, when she had the triplets with him, he was married to someone else, another artist called Winifred Nicholson, and they had a family. So he went between the two families. He and Hepworth didn't marry until 1938. So there she was, you know, living with these um, four children. The, the eldest did go to his father, who was another artist called John Skeeping. But she... Um, I, it's extraordinary, really, that she's criticised for putting the children in care. I don't know who could look after triplets by themselves. <laughs> and I think she actually was really struggled with that. She had the support of a friend financially, who, and the children were in a nursery um, very close by for the first few months of their lives, on and off, and she could see them regularly. And she was quite tormented by the fact that she had to do this. But, I mean, it was probably physically beyond the capacity of anybody to look after them alone. And I also feel that, you know, she, working as an artist was absolutely fundamental to her sense of identity and well-being. and she needed to make art. It was part of her, you know, her um, fundamental core. And I am, take my hat off to her for continuing her career at that time, particularly because her reputation was on the ascendant and she was becoming quite known. And so it was a very much... Um, a, a pull for her, you know, to, to have children looked after for a short short time, really, by somebody else. Yes, well, quite an extraordinary woman and a fascinating life alongside the artistic output, um, the way she did grapple with motherhood um, and ultimately uh, became very sick as well and had a, a period of trying to maintain her career alongside a, a difficult illness. The exhibition itself, can you tell us uh, when it's on and how listeners can get along? Absolutely. So it's open at Heidi Museum of Modern Art at the moment in our main gallery. So you can just turn up on at any time from Tuesday till Sunday between 10 and 5 to get a ticket or purchase your ticket beforehand online. Um, it's open until the 13th of March. It will be open over the summer when people are on holidays. And it's um, a really very beautiful mission, if I don't, you don't mind me saying so myself, to experience the first major room is full of um, some of the smaller and earlier pieces. And then the larger um, pieces are in the, the, the back gallery spaces. And some of them are very impressive and quite dramatic. And as I said, the exhibition designed by... Studio Bright is really empathetic to the works and there's a very good um, and fabulous surrealist inflected film made in 1953 set in St Ives with Barbara Hepworth where she, she places some of her sculptures literally in the landscape and on the, on the beach with the water lapping around them which is in one of the, um, the, the gallery spaces in the exhibition. So there's a lot to see and of course if you come to Heidi your ticket um, gains you entry to other exhibition spaces as well. And in our Heidi Modern building, we've got a beautiful 
show curated by Melissa Keys, which has um, uh, looks at artists internationally and locally who are influenced by the idea of the cavity or the absence or the void and or the perforation in art. So it kind of takes a spin off what Barbara Hepworth is doing, and there's some fabulous contemporary pieces in that exhibition. And of course, there's the lovely gardens as well, which adds that landscape element to the experience. Yes, and we have a super new um, cafe operator. Um, the Heidi Cafe has become Heidi Kitchen and the Mulberry Group has just opened up with a new menu and a fresh look and it's um, a fabulous time to come out to Heidi. Well, thank you very much for joining us this morning. It's been wonderful talking to you. I'm certainly going to get along to that exhibition over the summer. Thanks, Claudia. We really look forward to seeing you and some of your your, your listeners. Heidi. Thank, Thank you, so Kendra. Much. And that Bye -bye. was Kendra Morgan, co-curator of Barbara Hepworth in Equilibrium, showing at Heidi Museum of Modern Art in Melbourne. And this is a ticketed event, unless you're a museum member or resident of Manningham. But I suggest that um, listeners check out the uh, Visiting Heidi website, especially if you have mobility issues. Um, they have a very good access information page because there are some steps and slopes to navigate. Um, so, yeah, important to, to check on that before you take a visit. I think that's all we've got time for this morning so thank you to all our listeners and all our guests that have provided um, their stories for us today we'll see you next week and now it's time for stick together 3cr would like to thank our sponsors earth greetings cards that connect care and celebrate support wildlife and habitat with every purchase inspired by nature giving back to the planet learn more at earthgreetings.com.au 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. And while you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au.